I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you for listening. Uh, so we're just going to jump right in. I don't have uh, really any announcements. Uh, I guess I should mention that uh, this episode is brought to you by uh, DigiCiple Me, which is a, a service that can help your ministry or your church uh branch out uh, a little bit when it comes to social media. Uh, they help out more than one lesson. They help out Battleship Pretension um, with our Twitter accounts, our uh, Facebook accounts, in the case of BP, our Instagram. And uh, they do great work, and we really uh, appreciate what they do for us. So DigiCiple Me, um, you can uh, click on the on the uh, the large graphic at morethanonelesson.com to find out more. All right. So... I believe this is our last, yes, this is our, our third week in uh, uh, an accidental series that I find myself in where we talk about movies that nobody cares about. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about, uh, I guess maybe three weeks ago, we talked about The Lost City of Z. And then last week, Robert and I talked about Brooklyn. And this week, Josh and I are going to talk about James Ponsoldt's The End of the Tour. Josh, how are you? Hi. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> it's a very simple question. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Let's I, go back. Go back. Do it again. I guess let's, you know what? Let's go even simpler. What is your name? Hi. Oh, oh I knew it. Did I do it wrong again? I think so. Well, that's right. okay. You know. Uh, so, well, nobody's listening because they don't, they've never heard of this movie. So. Yeah. So it's all right. I don't know why I do this to myself. Uh, you know, one of the, like I do, I, 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 I'm pretty open about, you know, I don't go into any movie, uh, with, uh, the, the desire to like find Christian themes or anything like that. I don't go combing through a movie, mm -hmm. uh, looking for it. Um, it's just whatever, whenever it jumps out at me. And so a movie like this is really good evidence of that because if I was like, oh, I, uh, by weird coincidence, every movie that I find Christian themes in are really popular and could get a lot of <laughs> listens. Isn't that weird? Um, no, it is clearly not that. Uh, every once in a while, yes, I'll talk about an Avengers movie. And sometimes I will talk about Adam Resurrected starring Jeff Goldblum, a film that nobody heard of. And that's one of my earliest episodes. <laughs> I am not good at this. Um, so, okay. The end of the tour came out a couple years ago, and it was uh, it was a favorite over Battleship Pretension. Uh, I believe it wound its uh, wound up in the top ten. It was in my top ten. Oh yeah, cool. And um, and I believe as far as the BPs, I believe it was nominated for Best Actor for Jason Segel. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a really fascinating film that I wasn't really sure what to expect for a number of reasons. So, it is uh, it is 
based on a true story, except there's not much of a story to it. Yeah. Based on true events, I guess maybe Mm -hmm. is the thing to say. Um, and it's about David Foster Wallace, uh, the, uh, famous and talented writer who, uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago, uh, by his own hand. Uh, that is uh, common knowledge. And I think that element plays a pretty large role in this film mm-hmm. and it's based on a, so the film stars Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace and Jesse Eisenberg as writer, David Lipsky. Uh, this movie is based on his book, uh, about this. So, um, so once again, we're dealing with, with real people and, So David Foster Wallace wrote Infinite Jest, Mm -hmm. uh, a a book that I have heard nothing but great things about. A friend of the show, Jason Eakin, uh, raves about it. I believe he says it's it's his favorite book. Yeah, it's Um, it's my favorite, too. Wow. I guess uh, you guys are just best friends, and I'm just over here like some kind of jerk, (laughs) loving all the King's Men. Um, The book, not like a bunch of King's Men. Um, Could be both. Could be both. Why not? I've never met that many. Much less all of them. Yeah, all of them as a um, tall order. Yeah, exactly. I don't have that kind of time. Um, <laughs> you know how many king's men there are? Uh, so, yeah, uh, before we dig into the film, I feel like so much of this film's uniqueness, I don't know if that's a word, uniqueness, is that right? Uniquity. Uniquity, I don't thank know you. if that's real. That's right. <laughs> Unique, yeah, uniquitude, that's it. Um, so much of it, comes from the personality of David Foster Wallace, which I know about mostly through interviews. Hmm. Um, and so having not read any of his, uh, work, uh, that's not true. I've read interviews and then, you know, uh, short things that he has written, you know, sure. they could be speeches, they could be mm-hmm. like short stories. Um, but none of his, none of his books, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because I don't have time to read a, you know, 1600 page, uh, <laughs> opus. Um, he did only write two completed novels. Okay. So did they, did they publish uncompleted novels of his? Yes. They, they, uh, the manuscript that he was working on when he died was for, uh, something called the pale King and that's been that's released. Right. Yes. Yes. But I it's, heard about it's that. really in fragments. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't have a whole lot of cohesive, cohesive through lines. It almost reads like short stories. Side note. I was in a bit of a debate in one of my classes recently about mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Like publishing a, an incomplete work. Yes. Hmm. Um, specifically, uh, somebody had published, um, uh, a writer's notes that he was keeping as he was writing this seminal work. And I don't remember the name of the writer. I don't remember the name of the work anyway. So we were reading through those notes and you can sort of, and it's interesting because it is interesting in that you get to see the creative process because he was documenting his own process. And so you see little words here and little fragments. And then sometimes you'll see an entire paragraph that is almost word for word, what he wound up using in the, hmm. in the finished piece. Cause I feel like that is sometimes how it works. Um, you know, if I'm writing a paper or a review for the most part, I'll have an outline and all that, but then I will, I will write a paragraph or two and think, okay, well, obviously this is going in as is, this is about as good as this can get. And it perfectly Mm -hmm. explains what I'm thinking. But anyway, so as we were reading through that, um, it, it kind of bothered me because this was, these notes were published after the guy I think had passed away. Mm Mm-hmm. And it just felt wrong. Like he never wanted us to see those notes. Those were for him. Um, he did not give them to someone to publish. Somebody found them and published them. 
And I just thought like, I recognize that as, as academics, like we're supposed to just drink in everything we can, but it feels mm-hmm. wrong, uh, that we are all reading. So, you know, if you're an artist, then it's all about what you are choosing to express. And he did not choose to express that. We actually do have what he chose to express in the finished work. And I don't know what, what do you, so you know, with the Pale King, which and, and now that you say the title, I remember that being a big deal mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago when they put it out. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Like, are you happy that they put it out? It feels uh, sort of invasive to me. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of go back and forth on it because I think uh, I think there's kind of a spectrum of uh, something that would be totally acceptable to something that an author would have hated to have been out there. And then for that reason, maybe shouldn't be. Um, and with the pale, with the pale King specifically, I remember coming away from it feeling like there were parts that I enjoyed, but overall I didn't particularly like it because right. it doesn't have any kind of connectivity in it. Right. And if um, he had opted to stick around and finish it, maybe it would have been amazing. And he was certainly building towards something and he'd been working on it for a while too. Um, so I think there were, it had a very good chance to be something great, but as it is now, isn't great. And I, I feel like that put that creates in its readers a tendency to think less of him as a writer, right? Which I think, uh, from the creatives standpoint, I don't think, he would have liked that. I don't think I would like being put in that situation. So I don't know. Um, at the same time, I know there are times when authors have been too self-critical to a degree that, that I, there's one story and I'm, I'm trying to remember what this one is and I can't, but there's some work of literature. That's like a great piece of literature where the author wanted it destroyed. And I think he even tried to throw it into the fire or something mm-hmm. like that. And his wife stopped him from doing that or, or like you might be talking about Mozart uh, <laughs> based on the memorable quotes for the companion film. As I was looking through them, it's it's, I know that that happens, but no, okay. it's something else I was reading about recently. And like, I think his wife had to publish after his death. And, uh, but you know, there are times when things like right. that happen. Mozart's another example. Yeah. Um, so, so there is a sense that sometimes just because an author wouldn't have wanted it out, isn't a good reason. Yeah. But I don't know. And and in like notes and, and kind of peripheral things that are connected to it, in some cases, that's no different than listening to like an interview with a, an author or a creator right. of some kind. Um, it's, that's just a look behind the curtain. But, but even then, the, the, the author knows he's right. being interviewed. When the know? author doesn't have a choice whether or not somebody is right. looking over their notes. I don't know. Like, and that's the thing is, uh, you know, in this class, one of the things that we were looking at was one of the larger paragraphs, uh, that actually, I don't think migrated to the, to the finished work. And in it, he, he uses the word whores, uh, to reference prostitutes and, and the way in which he is talking about them. People in class thought that it was very, uh, it was very judgmental and all that. So I was just like, they're judging, mm. Judging his character, they're judging his character based on his innermost thoughts. We all have we all have things that go on in our minds that are probably very ugly 
that we choose not to say. And if he wrote that note, but did not include it in the finished work, then ultimately he's choosing not to say it. Mm -hmm. You know, think of the things that you think about other people, the things that I think about other people. If anybody could read our minds, they'd say you're this, that's the worst person in the world. Everybody has that, but we don't choose to say it. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, yeah, it's just a thing that instinctively bothers me. Like Mm -hmm. if, you know, we talked, um, you know, because to me, as strange as it may sound, you can only go down that path for so long before you arrive at VidAngel. You know what I mean? <laughs> because if we're just going to throw any kind of artist's intentionality out the window, then we might as well just say, yeah, I mean, if we have the right to publish stuff that he never wanted published, then we have the right to cut out stuff that he did publish. Because what is because what he wanted clearly doesn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Um I was not I was not expecting to bring it, bring up uh, VidAngel in this episode, <laughs> but it sounds right. Um, all this is to say, sorry, we got uh, went down that uh, rabbit hole. Um, this is the second week that I wound up having uh, odd academic and critical conversations that uh, are vaguely connected to the uh, <laughs> to the episode. But um, so, what I was going to ask, uh, as somebody who is a, a fan of uh, David Foster Wallace. What did you think going into this film? And then what did you think coming out as far as capturing the spirit of this man who is, uh, you know, even in interviews seemed very, very uh, open and transparent. But, uh, you know, as as is often the case with anybody that that commits suicide, there's probably an unknowable element to them. Yeah. And I, I think the film definitely captures, uh, I can definitely see the film trying to capture that. I'm not sure if it does fully, but, uh, I, going into it, I was, I was excited, but, um, tentatively, I guess, because first of all, I wasn't sure how Jason Siegel would portray him because I think mm-hmm. of Jason Siegel as my, per, as primarily kind of a farce comedy actor. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's most of what he does. Not to say that he's not capable of other things, right? But uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's this, this is a weird comparison. But when Michael Keaton was coming to be Batman, a lot of people were like, oh, "I don't know about that." So uh, you know, it, it's a maybe a similar thing where what I'm used to seeing that actor do doesn't seem exactly right for this part. Yeah. Um, also, I was just kind of curious to see how exactly they would portray him um because i feel like there are a lot of different roads you can go down um yeah. there's uh, you could go down something based solely on the fiction that he's written or solely on the uh, there's so many different facets of him that have now gotten out there and a lot of people became fascinated with him after his death right um it came it became sort of this tragic figure and yeah. uh to a lesser degree but in the same way that Kurt Cobain or, or sure. uh, John Lennon or one of these people that we think what, you know, what would have happened if we hadn't lost them. Right. Um, so, uh, so there's all this kind of stuff floating around and a lot of kind of thoughts and opinions about, you know, what he was like. It seems like something like David Lipsky's book is one of the better sources for what he would have been like, because this yeah. is somebody who had to spend time with him um, you know, over a long period to just write all this stuff. And, uh, that's one, that's one of the things I think I liked the most about the film was that, 
or the, at least the portrayal of David Foster Wallace was uh, the way that we see him kind of trying to be different things to different people. Yeah. And in such a way that he's almost uncomfortable with just being himself. And then to counter that in some of the ways when we sort of see him just being himself, I didn't really like the way those moments are approached. Like, there's a sequence, I think later on in the film, where it seems like he's maybe interested in one of a couple girls. Yeah. And is jealous of the way that David Lipsky is interacting with the girls or something right. like that. And kind of becomes a little bit of like a petulant child, like yeah. a, a jealous, jealous kid. Yeah. And something about that uh sequence of events or, or either the way it's written or the way it's it's performed i'm not sure but something didn't ring true about that exactly to me um so i think coming out of it i liked um i think i liked it overall and I, like i said i like the aspect that he, we we see different uh, we see different selves that he puts on um but i i wanted more where he kind of talks about what his uh, about his ideas of life and the, and the way that he creates characters based on that. Right. And there's one moment when they're at the mall of America, they have a little conversation back and forth. And that's my favorite part in the movie yeah. when he kind of talks about his, his work that way. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's something that I often think when I'm watching a movie about an artist, um, whether it be a musician or a painter or a, a director or an actor or something like that. Um, if it's, if it's, you know, based on a, on a true story and if I'm familiar with that art, uh, so I watch this and I think based on how this film is portraying this person, do I actually believe that this person that I'm watching could create that art? Hmm. So having read infinite jest, do you believe that this depiction of David Foster Wallace could write that book? I'm not sure. I feel okay. like I, I, I'm definitely not a hundred percent on it. Like maybe 60 to 75%. And that, and honestly, that might be the most that is possible. Maybe. Um, I will say that, you know, my, the, the gold standard for me when it comes to any kind of biopic, even ones that are in microcosm is usually Capote. Hmm. Um, I believe that Capote could write, I've read in cold blood. Hmm. And when I see Capote, just the way that he's presented, the way he carries himself and the way the, the script is written, this is a man that I absolutely believe could write the novel that I, the, you know, historical fiction or whatever you want to call it, uh, historical novel uh, that I had read. I believe he could do that, even though he writes it in a way that doesn't seem very, you know, uh, New York elite. Right. Uh, it seems somehow, but it doesn't seem patronizingly down home either mm -hmm. he captures this odd objective tone that i believe that man could as played by philip Seymour hoffman i believe he could do yeah um as opposed to a year after capote there's a movie called infamous oh, yeah. in which toby jones does a great job as as uh truman capote and but, he looks like him too <laughs> and he looks like him you know it works really well but the way he's written and just the tone of that film does not seem it captures elements of Truman Capote, but not the not the elements that I believe could lead to his writing of In Cold Blood. Mm -hmm. So I look at that and no offense to Toby Jones, if you'd cast him in Capote, I think he could have risen to that. No yeah. question. But uh, yeah, I don't believe that that 
man could have written the the book that I'd read. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yeah, I will say that uh, reading some of the stuff that I have read, and then having uh, once again, Jay, a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, uh, give me. Uh, I'm going to say too detailed of. Uh, of an explanation of certain elements of infinite jest, which seems appropriate. Um, you know, I'm starting to think that maybe life itself is just a footnote in infinite jest. Um, totally possible. So, uh, I will say that there is an element to the conversations between David Lipsky and David Foster Wallace in which they are going, they just keep going inside themselves and inside their own motivations, each other's motivations. They talk about what is false. Um, and then they go really meta with what they are doing, which is ultimately like, how can I help but be false? You are asking me questions and my persona could answer or I could answer, but they're also the same thing. But we're like, I cannot answer a hundred percent honestly, because I know who you are and what you represent. And then you can't ask, you know, you may try to be genuine with me, but you're also aware that there are certain, there's certain bits of information that you want to get from me at some point. Mm -hmm. And so we're both being false, but trying so hard to be real, but maybe I actually am this egotistical writer and you are this eager reporter. Maybe that's who we are. And the, the genuine thing that we're trying to, portray maybe that's what's actually false so it's just this 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 idea of like the persona versus the real that seemed that actually did seem like the type of person that could conceive of infinite jest sure um and those are the sequences that i find most invigorating because uh it's it's two it's two artistic thinkers who are used to thinking a lot and they're ex- they're exploring this thing together, and those moments I find very invigorating. Uh, it those moments almost led me to pick a different companion film, hmm. which would have been my dinner with Andre. Hmm. Um, which is uh, at some point I, I would need to rewatch it again, but I, that is a movie that I would like to devote an entire episode to. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I to me that's. It's such an odd film. It does now that I mentioned Capote, it does remind me of Capote in certain ways. One is that uh, you have this odd flamboyant, not to imply David Foster Wallace is flamboyant in the same way that that Truman Capote was, mm. but he just seems like he does not belong where he is. Mm-hmm. You know, he's in this he's in this small house in the middle of nowhere in just this midwestern place, and he is by all accounts, a genius who has just written this staggering work. And it's just, it just doesn't seem to fit like how on, and, but the film really has this meditative quality to it the way Capote did for me. Um, and so, uh, and it's the, and it's the fact that he is this genius in the midst of this very unassuming place that seems to feel to him inherently as Holden Caulfield would say phony. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's a film that I find myself having a hard time talking about. So why not devote a whole episode to it? <laughs> idiot. Um, I have a hard time talking about because it seems to be about so much and so, and yet so little. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all based in these characters conception of themselves and each other through the fil- through the lens of fame and desire and envy and insecurity and exhilaration. They're excited to be having these conversations, but they're inherently suspicious of them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I realize that everything I just said is very lofty and strange, <laughs> but I feel like it's appropriate for this film. Yeah. Um, did you come away with, uh, you know, you, it sounds like, it sounds like I liked the movie more than you did, but that's not, uh, unusual. You, you know, I, I, I'm sure if the film were in French, oh, then, la la. Yeah. <laughs> you would put down your uh, loaf of bread and put out and stub out your cigarette and uh, just for long enough to give it <laughs> sank stars. <laughs> <laughs> You're a ridiculous person. And you know what's fun is that you could you could riff with me on that and actually like raise the bar. I appreciate that. Um so uh but yeah, um did you find yourself uh getting wrapped up in the types of conversations that they were having or did you did you kind of find yourself at a remove? I I I did in some of them. I, yeah. I, I probably in the deeper ones, yes. Because yeah. I feel like that's what I wanted out of the movie because one of the things that I enjoy about him as a writer is the depth. Yeah. And um, kind of exploring depth in boring everyday things and people. Sure. Um, so I did like that aspect of it. Um, yeah, but for some reason I felt like there wasn't enough of that type of thing in it. I feel like I wanted more of that. And maybe that's unrealistic. I don't know. I don't. I haven't read Lipsky's book, so maybe right. There's more of that than there should be. Who knows? So I was looking over my. Uh, this may may sound strange, but I was looking over my review uh, of the the film, which uh, I thought, oh, I'll look it up on my website, and then I thought, no, I'll look in my book. Worth watching. Hey. Fifteen dollars. More than a lesson. dot <laughs> com. Um, and. And it's weird. And this is, it, it seems presumptuous of me to say this because of course I haven't read his book, but I've read interviews and he did seem to have a very specific type of personality. And in a way it's almost as though the film is trying to do justice to the things, to the conflict of David Foster Wallace, because the film isn't too deep because I think he probably wouldn't want to be that. He wouldn't want to be this pretentious guy who only ever has deep conversations. Right. And so Every once in a while, yeah, they're just going to talk about Twinkies and <laughs> and just eat a lot of junk food, and that's it. Yeah. And I feel like in that way, it is being true to who he would want to be, or to get even deeper, who he would want to be seen to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe they're the same thing, maybe they're not. Uh, his inability to reconcile those two things seems to be one of the big sources of conflict in his life uh, in this film. Um, and one of the things that, again, fascinates me about it. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, the way the film is constructed, the way the film is shot. um, And also I was shocked when I saw the uh, credit for Danny Elfman at the end of the film. That score is, it's a very good score, but it is, I I don't, I don't see Danny Elfman in there anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And not unlike when I saw The Unknown Known, which is an Errol Morris documentary, and Danny Elfman does the music for that and is quite honestly doing his best Philip Glass. <laughs> um, and like, I appreciate that he's trying to branch out, but it's 
I don't know. It's uh, with composers somehow if they if they go too far afield, it feels like hey, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> Except he did. I didn't know it was him. Well, um, and the music is appropriate for for the film. So in that way, I guess mm-hmm. you know, congratulations. He did a great score. It's yeah. just, it was jarring for me to see his name there at the end. Um, but uh, let me ask you this: Did you find? Because I was about to move on to the tone of the film. Mm-hmm. Do you find the film funny? Did you laugh at all? I think some. Yeah. Yeah. Infinite Jest is funny, correct? Yeah. Like it is, would you, I would ask you to say, I would ask you to tell me what it's about, but Jason did that once and <sighs> I, uh, he still might be telling me. <laughs> um, but uh, Jason, by the way, right now at this very moment, you know where he is? <laughs> oui. <laughs> Uh, oh, he, I'm sure he's being fitted for a beret right now. <laughs> Probably um, get off the so, plane and they do that, don't they? Exactly. It's like uh, it's like one of those lays at uh, <laughs> at, uh, at in Hawaii. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, uh, in the maybe the most abstract sense, not a story sense, but in the most abstract sense, what would you say Infinite Jest is about? I mean, you love this book so much. <laughs> um. And maybe that's unfair for me to ask. Cause like, I know that when people ask me why I love Nashville so much, I'm like, um, yeah. it feels wrong to put it into words. No, I think, I think to put it in the simplest way possible, it's about art and people's response to it. Okay. Because the, um, you could say the central thing, the central piece to the movie that all of it or the movie, the book that all of it kind of revolves around is a film that may or may not exist. That is so entertaining that people can't stop watching it and Mm. they watch it until they die because they can't, they can't stop because they enjoy it. So it's, it's so entertaining. Mm. So, uh, you know, it talks, talks about art and entertainment and how those two are wrapped up and, you know, the response of the viewer. And, uh, so yeah, I'd, I'd say in a, in the simplest sense, that's what it's about. Hmm. That does sound, and, and already there's, there's this idea of, you know, talking about larger things that he definitely addresses in this film, Mm -hmm. the idea of people seeking out, entertainment you know he's he's obsessed with junk food but he's talking about junk food that isn't merely food it's right. it could be the tv you're watching and just the stuff that's super easy to ingest mm-hmm. and that you can come become very addicted to mm-hmm. um i'm reminded i think uh one of i think one of the best stand-up comedy bits of the last 10 years is by jim gaffigan and a standup that I usually like and, and I laugh at, but I don't think he's tremendously great and uh, and I don't think he's profound. But he has a bit about McDonald's. Have you heard of it? Maybe. Where he essentially talks about how people think that they're better than McDonald's. And then he goes on to say like, yeah, but here's the thing. McDonald's isn't just McDonald's. And he describes like... TV shows that people watch, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians or whatever. Mm. Uh, he talks about, you know, sports that people watch stuff that's very easily digestible. And he says, yeah, that's McDonald's. Hmm. And it's this really, and it's this, it's this really interesting observation, Hmm. uh, from a guy who, you know, he often talks about food, uh, and he doesn't, 
he tends not to uh, talk much about like the larger culture, but in that moment he's saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because you're getting specific about the thing that you don't like, doesn't mean that you don't, that the same instinct is not in you. Yeah. And, uh, and that bit, uh, kind of remind, uh, I don't remember which I saw first this movie or that bit, but they, they seem to come from the same place. This mm. thing of like in America, in American culture specifically, there's this attitude of, you know, I want something fast. I want something that's good. I want something that is, that will seem to satisfy me for a short time. Uh, and then, uh, and then maybe it'll go away, but you know what? I can always get more of it. And of course, now that I mentioned, it, uh, you know, David Foster Wallace, uh, used drugs as well. And mm -hmm. so he had, and in this film, it's interesting that they kind of, he, he clearly steps around it because he doesn't want to be seen that way. He's so image conscious yeah. that he doesn't want to be seen as like, yeah, the, the author with the drug problem. Like, mm -hmm. and, and he even frames himself. He says, you know, pop culture and TV. I believe he just says TV, like TV is what I'm addicted to. Mm -hmm. And so he's perfectly willing to say I'm addicted to this thing, but again, it's still him shaping the image uh, and so like the thing I'm addicted to is the thing that I'm also, that I also wrote about. So I'm this complete package, but please don't think of me that way. Yeah. Um, and I can't decide whether the, and, and again, maybe that's in the actual interview. So if that's mm -hmm. the case, then obviously that's real. But part of me wonders whether that sort of thing is real because he seems to write so vulnerably about drug use and drug addiction in right. infinite just in such a way that. I would be surprised to find that he wouldn't want right. people to think that he does it. Maybe he might not want to talk about it as anyone might not. Sure. Like I'm sure that there are things that I, as an artist might want to put into my art, but not want to have a conversation with somebody about, right. but to not want to, to, to want people to not want anyone to know that you're, that you've had problems with drugs. It doesn't seem like that's consistent with who he was. But again, haven't read the book that sure. that might actually be the case. I, and I wouldn't, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if it was, it does seem like a, a film that is, is trying to be true to these interactions, uh, yeah. even in moments when they are, when they seem to contradict each other, as far as the, these two guys and their, their feelings for one another. Um, the way I, I guess I could see it in such a way as that, uh, you know, if he writes, he writes so in such a vulnerable and profound way about drug use, which one could make the argument that it seems less vulnerable if you're just right, or it seems less profound if you're just writing from a place of experience, because then, you know, if you are, if you are such a, like you're such a great artist that you can adequately capture this experience that you yourself have never had. But if, it, if you're just writing about stuff you've done, then yes, you might write eloquently about it. But in the end, it's just, it all comes, it's all coming back to you. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe he didn't want to be seen that way. Maybe he wanted to uh, be seen as a, as like a, in this film specifically, um, as like a, a better writer. And I, and I say that not as someone who is judging his writing, but as a guy who who judges his own writing, mm. you know, like I feel like, uh, sorry, not me, him. Mm. He is a harsh critic of himself. And even though 
he put the book out and I think he believes in it. And I think he would say that it is good. I feel like he also doubts himself constantly. Yeah. And so, which is why he's so image conscious mm-hmm. and to go back to this, cause this is the thing I keep coming back to. I can't say, an, and I say this in the best possible way. I can't say anything definitive about him in this film mm-hmm. because at any moment he could try to slip out of that and say like, no, that's not who I am. Mm-hmm. But then he would want to slip away from the type of person that declares who he is yeah, and what he is. Um, and so, uh, so I think that's the, that's the kind of thing after a certain point, this could, this could lead to a larger discussion as well. After a certain point, I need to be okay with this might not be who David Foster Wallace was. This yeah. might not capture him completely. So looking at him as a character in a movie, mm-hmm was this interesting for me? And so yeah. is that something that you are able to do as a fan of his? Yeah. Well, I, I think I'd modify slightly what you said is that I don't think I have to be okay with them presenting him in such, in a way that I might not think is genuine, but if I'm approaching the film, if I'm critiquing the film as its own artifact, then right. that's not part of it, you know? Right. Um, uh, the, which is the case with any adaptation really. Um, so I think, uh, I think in that, in that sense, it is, that is a, an interesting play that they, yeah. that they do interplay that they do with the characters. Uh, and so let's actually get to the, the characters themselves and the performances. Um, I do think that Jason Siegel does a pretty good job. I was, I've never, I've seen maybe a handful of episodes now, after watching the film of uh, How I Met Your Mother. Mm. And then I had seen him in, you know, I think Forgetting Sarah Marshall and I Love You Man and The Muppets. So I'd seen him in kind of this nice guy type of role. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I actually have never seen Freaks and Geeks. And I know that he's very, he's, he was in that. But, um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's, he's good in everything. I, I thought he was really good in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And, and I actually liked I Love You Man quite a bit. Um, he does have it, he has a very natural, likability to him. Mm-hmm. And so, and just a guy who seems completely free of pretension. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. And so to play this guy who I won't say is pretentious, but a guy who is very aware that he could be seen as pretentious and is desperately trying not to be seen that way. Um, I remember thinking like that. It's an interesting choice to cast this guy. Um, because Jason Siegel is for all intents and purposes, kind of an everyman, And then David Foster Wallace wanted to be, but also didn't <laughs> like it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's very, I find it delightfully complicated. And so, so I think Jason Siegel does a really, uh, a really great job. And I feel like his, uh, in those awkward scenes that you're talking about where he gets a little bit jealous and he gets a little, pos- a little bit possessive of things and you see, you know, uh, the, the petulant side of him, um, that, you know, I would say artists in general could have. Um, I think he, I think he uh, pulls it off very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then here, here's the thing that we haven't really talked about is that Jesse Eisenberg as uh, David Lipsky, you know, these are co-leads. Like it is, yeah. it is not, here's David Foster Wallace and then David Lipsky is the supporting. No, it is back and forth between the two of them. If anything, yeah. David Lipsky might be more the lead. Cause he's more our entry point to the right. story. Um, and then, and so you have, you know, Jesse Eisenberg who can be very ingratiating, but 
can also be seen as like this motor mouth, uh, insecure, um, Woody Allen, (laughs) Woody Allen type. Um, but also just somebody who, who can kind of be insensitive to other people. I mean, that's why he, that's one of the things he did so well in the social network. Um, and so, you know, Jesse Eisenberg can, can seem very unlikable at times. And so you have these two guys together who can be likable, but are often, but, but are in this film, uh, you see kind of the, the underbelly and the insecurity that drives both of them. And, and I feel like he, I feel like Jason Siegel it can it is allowed to give a more showy performance because yeah. he's playing this eccentric, mm-hmm. um, and I think he wisely plays that down. But in playing an eccentric, uh, he could basically just own the movie, and whoever was playing David Lipsky could just let him have the movie. Yeah, uh, but I think. Jesse Eisenberg, and then then Jane, James Ponsold as well as the director, I think recognize that no, 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 this needs to be a back and forth, not just this author dictating yeah. to this uh, this reporter. Yeah, and I and I think that works well, and I, I think Jesse Eisenberg's perfect for that part. I, he he, um, part of me feels sorry for an actor a little bit when they do uh, when they're doing roles that are really just smack in the middle of their type. Yeah. Um, cause it's, it's almost like we don't see that they're doing such a great job, even though yeah. they might be doing the best job of their career, you know? Um, so, so I think the performance doesn't immediately stand out as extraordinary, but I think it is a great performance and I think it's part of it. It's cause he's, he does great at those, these types of roles. Yeah. Yeah. It's like anytime it's a thing that I, that I've become increasing. I, I start to, I kind of, my shoulders hunch a little bit when people say like, Oh, so-and-so they only ever play themselves. And like there, and you know, there's two responses to that. And one is like, you should try it sometime. It's surprisingly difficult. You know, mm-hmm. like you acted on stage and in film, I acted on stage. Um, and Oh, if I had an accent to do, Oh, thank God. <laughs> Because I really didn't like my actual voice. And I don't mm-hmm. know if I, if I ever used my real voice and my real cadence on stage, cause it just didn't f- seem right to me. And if I had to, I feel like I would have been really self-conscious and I think that would have read. Um, and so if somebody can effectively be themselves on screen, that's, that means that they're very present and they are doing a wonderful job of forgetting that there's a camera two feet from their face. Um, and then the other, the other part of it is like, yeah, they might be playing themselves, but unless the actor by wacky coincidence is, you know, needing to cry at this particular moment, then that means that they are replicating emotion that they are not feeling at that, you know, in that scene. And so that, that is also acting, Yeah, you know, acting doesn't mean you put on a fake nose and you just, uh, give this extravagant performance and, Oh, oh but this, Oh, look, this is a different fake nose. Mm-hmm. What a great actor. Yeah. Um, and I think that, yeah, Jesse Eisenberg, I always believe him in everything he is in. Yes. Even when he is playing Lex Luthor in Batman V Superman, <laughs> where he is, I will say stretching, uh, himself <laughs> as an actor, but I think he does a good job. I remember being excited when I saw that he was cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they definitely took the character in a different direction. That's for sure. Mm. But, um, but yeah, uh, these, yeah, it's a film with 
the end of the tour is a, a you know we've got co-leads they're going back and forth and they need to be equally powerful because whether whether they're having discussions or debates or arguments like we need to be able to see both of their perspectives and i think we are inclined to be more on the side of david foster wallace because the film itself says like well he's the important one um but the fact that he is able to treat David Lipsky as an equal speaks to who he is and who he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then there are some you know, supporting performances. I'd say uh, people just kind of come in and out of the film. Yeah. Uh, Joan Cusack, always a delight as a, as a, like a, a representative of the publisher, I believe. Right. Mm, I think so. Yeah. And uh, Joan Cusack is sort of an unsung hero, not merely <laughs> of Hollywood, but I think of the world. Um <laughs> I always enjoy her and, and she does seem like a very specific type of clueless, but wanting to be positive <laughs> and that sort of thing. So, um, but yeah, and I don't, I don't have really much else to say about the film. Um, you know, I saw it having not read infinite jest, you saw it having read it and loving it. It's in this great book, apparently, <laughs> um, you know, so I, it's a movie that I would definitely recommend to people. Uh, and then, yeah, I think I would recommend to people whether they even know who David Foster Wallace is. Mm-hmm. Um, would you? Th- do you think that the film would be better for someone who hadn't seen it, or someone uh, that hadn't read the book, or someone that had? Um, I don't. I don't think it's. I, don't, I wouldn't think strongly one way or the other. Okay. Yeah. I. I and I would recommend the film. Like I said, there's. Yeah. I have some things that I don't love about it, but I still think it's a good film. Yeah. And I. I just look because you mentioned about when you wrote a review on it, and I was like, I feel like I remember writing something for it, and sure enough, I did. Uh, it was on my top ten for that year for oh, Battleship Pretension, and uh, I wrote at the end here. I forgot that I wrote this. That he whole. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character holds a Salierian grudge against the weirdo author whose genius he can't deny. Salieri. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder what that could be a reference to. Perhaps it is our companion film Amadeus. Perhaps. Directed by Milos Forman, written by Peter Schaefer, based on his play. Um, We've talked about this film before. We are both under the impression that we've talked about it at length. <laughs> we've never done an episode about it, I yeah. think. I'm almost positive. We did a mini-sode about it. If there's an episode out there and you, <laughs> you the listener, remember it, but we don't, then uh, let us know because then... I'm usually pretty good at that. Especially, I, I feel like you'd remember. When I would we be devote, shocked. When we devote an entire episode to an older film... Because when we do that, we, there is no companion right. film. Like when we did Man for All Seasons, uh, Last Temptation of Christ. Um, Amadeus. Uh, what was that? <laughs> Don't try and screw me up here, all right? You're getting inside my head long. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it's it's a film that uh, I, I can't recommend highly enough. Uh, I, I rewatched it when we did our minisode, and it, it's just this astonishing film because it's this period piece about a classical composer. And you have this image in your head of what that will mean tonally. It's like, all right, it's going to be very stodgy. It's going to be very slow. Yes. Yes. He's a genius. Let's move on. (laughs) Um, It's not that it has such life and vigor to it. It's uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's Milos Forman who made one flew of the cuckoo's nest. And so he really likes 
you know, and then he would make uh, the people versus Larry Flint. He'd make man on the moon. So he likes movies about, you know, people <laughs> are, on the outside. Yeah. Kind of are, polarizing characters. Yeah. And, and that are full of life and kind of shape their time and all that. And so, um, but what's interesting about Amadeus uh, is that that, that is also a film with two leads quite, I mean, quite literally uh, both Tom Holtz who played Mozart and F Murray Abraham who played Salieri. They were both nominated for best actor hmm. um, with Abraham ultimately winning. And he said uh, a real, it was a really nice moment. He, he, I believe the first thing that he said when he went up, he said, there's only one thing missing for me. And that is to, you know, that is that I don't have Tom Holt standing here right by my side. That's a nice thing to say, but you know, it's gotta be awkward when <laughs> just like, Hey, we're both nominated. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's two leads, very different characters and yeah. a different, a much more contentious relationship. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, but, and I'll, I'll dig more into this in a moment. Um, contentious sort of behind the scenes, you know, Salieri wants to seem as though he is, he's on Mozart's side and in a way he is, cause he still loves the music. He believes he still, in the music. Yeah. Yeah. And he just doesn't like that. This is the guy that's making it, but an argument could be made. He wouldn't like that. Anybody was making it except him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the, the tragedy of Salieri and, uh, I think a very relatable one. I think anybody that has been, that is artistically minded in any kind of way, they're probably aware of their own limitations, aware that other people probably don't have those limitations. There's always, there's almost always going to be someone that is better than you at the thing that you are best at. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there is, there is a best somewhere out there. Um, they might be like in the term, let's go with the directors, like film directors, you know, you can be Martin Scorsese who is by all accounts, like a top three director, certainly working today. Um, but Paul W S Anderson is still out there trying to remember who that is. Did he do mortal Kombat? Uh, that that sounds about right. It seems like he would. Yes. he did uh he's in a bunch of video game adaptations i think yes he i think he did the resident evil movies and oh boy most recently oh i saw this on a tv in a mexican restaurant and i was trying so hard to figure out what the movie was and now i can't remember what it was who was that uh Kiefer sutherland okay it's some kind of medieval type thing ugh I think I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember what it's called. I, I looked it up and I figured it out and sure enough, he was the director. Oh no, I think that's part of the reason I figured it out is because they showed his name on screen. So I figured out that he was the director. Which is weird because it was the midpoint of the movie. He likes <laughs> you to remember who's in charge of this thing. He's uh yeah. But, uh, but yeah. And so, you know, Martin Scorsese is, is arguably, and I'm not sure if I would say this, but a lot of people, let's say the Coen brothers, you know, the Coen brothers or Martin Scorsese, like the best directors working today. Um, people might say David Fincher. Um, but any one of those directors would say, yeah, but I'm not as good as David lean. I'm not as good as Hitchcock. How Mm -hmm. could anybody ever be? Yeah. Um, Pompeii is the film that I was thinking of. (laughs) That's right. It was in 3d. Of course. And the Mexican restaurant. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, 
it's weird that they gave everyone glasses when you, the moment you walked in. <laughs> um, so, you know, everybody has that and, you know, ideally you make your peace with it. You just say, all right, I've got my, I've got my area. I've got my role to play. I'm going to direct my movies. I'm going to, uh, write my music. I'm going to do my podcast, whatever it is. And it will reach the people that it reaches. I will become the level of famous that I am meant to be. And I, and that's okay. And maybe I'll be super famous. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll do amazing work. Maybe it'll just be fine. Uh, maybe my stuff will be forgotten in 10 years. Maybe people will remember it for a hundred. Uh, this is what I'm doing and I get to do it. And that's exciting. Um, but so that's the ideal, but I feel like very few people have that. Everybody Mm -hmm. is aware. Everybody on some level is probably aware that they are not where they would like to be. It could be, I feel like ideally it's logistically, I'm not where I want to be. I want to be further ahead in my career. I feel like that's, if, if you're going to feel bad about where you are, I feel like that's ideal. Mm-hmm. Where I think is worse is I'm not where I want to be as far as my talent. And I think this is as far as I'm ever going to get. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the, one of the real tragedies of Salieri. It's not merely that he won't be remembered. It's that he knows that his music is not as good as Mozart and never will be. Yeah. And the way he just keeps referring to himself as mediocre. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> it's heartbreaking. It's yeah. absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. And, and, and one of the reasons that we could devote a whole episode to, to the film is because he, Salieri is, is a, uh, a God fearing man. Um, but clearly is, a. Uh, you know, he wants to have his best life now to not put too fine a point on it. And, uh, he, d- he seems to expect God to do things for him. And, and when God doesn't, or when God works in a way that he thinks is inappropriate, uh, then he turns on God. Yeah. Takes um, matters into his own hands. So I, uh, so there's a scene here where Salieri is saying, is praying and he said, and it's after, you know, Mozart is, uh, doing so well and Salieri saying to God says from now, uh, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you choose for your instrument, a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy, and give me for reward only to recognize the incarnation because you are unjust, unfair, unkind. I will block you. I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature. As far as I am able, I will ruin your incarnation. That's pretty tough stuff. (laughs) Um, but it did remind me of a uh, Bible verse here. Um, let's see here. I want to make sure. Okay, so there's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 through 29. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So it's this idea, I mean, he's literally saying like, you chose for your instrument this amazing thing and it makes me feel so bad. Mm -hmm. And what it's essentially doing is it is revealing uh, Salieri's own pride and his own desire to be the best. Yeah. Um, And 
again, I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to because why do something unless you can be the best at mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Um, very few people say like, eh, sure. Why not? <laughs> that works. I'm, you know what? I'm a B minus and that's all right. <laughs> you know, people want to be an A, they want to yeah. be an A plus. And if they're not, then they'll just keep working towards it. But when you add a spiritual element to it and, and status and talent is the most important thing, then suddenly you're, you're being a B minus and maybe at best you'll only ever be a B or a B plus. Suddenly there starts to be a spiritual significance to that. And you start to think like, well, why is God coming down so hard on me when I'm, when I'm trying so hard, it's very works-based on top mm -hmm. of everything else. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, one thing that I did, uh, want to mention in watching Amadeus, uh, is that like the real self-hatred of Salieri, it just like pours off the pours off the screen. And I think F Murray Abraham just does such a great job of a guy who just by the end seems to take some kind of weird, perverse joy in how much he hates himself. Um, and I find myself wishing no offense to F Murray Abraham or Tom Holtz, but I wish I could see the original play because do you know who played these parts? I don't. Ian McKellen and Tim Curry. Really? Yeah. In hmm. the, in the early eighties, late seventies, I think. Um, and Ian McKellen, like as Salieri, I feel like, cause he's a guy who, ha who can, who can play glib and self-aware in a very specific way. Like I remember him in uh, gods and monsters where I think yeah. he does a, a marvelous job and Tim Curry can be over the top and crazy. And I feel like it'd be fun to see him in that part, but, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, uh, and then the same, it's the same playwright. He, he adapted his own work and the film does not feel stagey at all. No, not at all. Um, and, and that really speaks to, to Milos Forman as a director is yeah. that he can take something that is, should be in such a simple setting and yeah. it feels uh, epic and cinematic. It feels like it couldn't have been done any other way. And One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is also based on a play. Yeah. And even though it's contained to one area and it's not quite as big and cinematic as Amadeus, it doesn't feel like a play to me. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that is a function of Milos Forman and his ability to work with actors and to not be limited by his material. Um, and so uh, so we'll we'll move on. We, we kind of started heading down this way. Uh, so I don't mean to look at the end of the tour and only think that it is about envy. It's about so much more than that. Um, but, you know, Lipsky is a fan of David Foster Wallace and he is a writer in his own, in his own right. Um, and so to be near this guy that he's a fan of, but also it's like, he has this thing. Well, there's a line here. He, uh, Lipsky says he wants more than he has. I want precisely what he already has. Yeah. Um, and it's this, you know, it's, it's interesting because as somebody who struggles with envy a lot, um, in any number of ways, not merely, Oh, I feel like uh, I wish that my podcast or whatever it is, I wish that it were, uh, better known. I mean, we've been, you know, with BP, we've been doing it 10 years. Why can't we be better known? But it's also, I wish I was better at podcasting. I wish mm -hmm. I were as good as so-and-so or, yeah. 
you know, and then for me, as it always manifests itself physically, like I wish that I looked better, but then it leads to, I wish that I liked sports more than I do. Cause I hate them so much. <laughs> um, and then some people love them. And so they're looking good. is just effortless. They love it. I go to the gym. I hate every single second of it. And then I hate that. And, and I hate that. I hate it. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's the thing that I definitely struggle with. Um, I'm, <laughs> I was telling you off mic, I'm, I'm writing a research paper for school right now about any number of things, but like the role of criticism in the modern digital age and, uh, in the age of, you know, Rotten Tomatoes and Netflix and all that. And so I'm reading this book that talks about video essays and it talks about podcasts and it lists some notable podcasts. And I know all the good, I know all the guys that do those shows. I'm not in there. <laughs> and, and. <laughs> You know, and I and I was getting to a point where I'm where I was kind of okay with my level of podcast fame. Then I read that and I thought, boy, it sure would have been nice to read my my podcast name in there. Yeah. Nope. That uh, that makes me think of. I think the moment in uh, in end of the tour that makes me think of that the most, or maybe that crystallizes that the most, is um, uh, part of the story is that David Lipsky has recently published a book, right. And when that comes up in their conversations, uh, you would, you're kind of hoping with him that, you know, he wants David Foster Wallace to say, I I liked it, like to validate him in that way. But not only does he not say anything positive or negative about it, he hasn't, he doesn't hurt, he hasn't heard of it. Yeah, of course not. So (laughs) that just feels so crushing to him in that moment that like it's not even on the radar for this guy yeah it's yeah and it's not it's not as if the it's not as if they are that distant either like to have a book published is a big deal he's not just some you know reporter who happened to get a a a book deal he's a novelist in his own right but another self-publish which is obviously not real at all and really no achievement Certainly not um, I, I'm not sure what we're talking about anymore. Neither am I. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it, it, just that crushing, you know, it's that, it's that old, uh, Casablanca line, like, uh, you saying, you know, you despise me, don't you? And he says, like, if I gave you any thought I would. <laughs> um, and then there's a line from, uh, the Lion in Winter, which I don't know if you know or not, but I was in that play. Uh, in, you know in what? High you talked about yourself having done theater, and we breezed right past it. And I thought it's it's not even going to oh come up. Oh my gosh! I, I got to do it. a British accent and everything. It was great. <laughs> but there's a line where uh, the middle son Jeffrey says to his son and, and says, "Like you don't think much of me, do you?" And he says, "Much? I don't think of you at all." Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, to have your own father say that's terrible. <laughs> um, and. And yeah, and it's, and, and Wallace doesn't say that with any malice or anything. It's just, that's just the fact of it. And it's like, but you know what, here's what, here's what I'll say is that if I'm Lipsky in that situation, I almost wish he had said it with malice Mm. because I would take someone actively coming at me to, to not being thought of at all. Yes. Yeah. To not being on, because if someone's against me, they at least know who I am. No right. such thing as bad press, <laughs> and they have a uh, they have a reaction to it that you can kind of pick apart right. and maybe disagree with. You know, right. like you or 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 chalk it up to envy or some yeah. something else. Um, and, if, and if you're an artist, 
you know, you really only have your art to speak for you for to a certain extent. And so if somebody is not aware of your art, you don't exist. Yeah. And to to receive only from that the pity that your thing is not big enough that it made a blip on somebody's radar is that's that's about the worst. However, that's about the worst. Let's go back to Amadeus, (laughs) where Mozart plays one of Salieri's pieces and seem any says it's perfectly fine but there comes a moment where he's playing it and and at one point he says and then it's just he gets to the end of the piece and he says and then it's just the same thing over again right and he says it with no malice he's just saying what he has observed and what he's observed is oh you did something and now you're just doing it again and that's the piece mm-hmm. and but yeah like so Sal, uh, Mozart had heard of Salieri. A lot of people had. He was actually fairly famous. So he had heard of him and he was perfectly willing to play this piece um, with no malice in his heart uh, but uh, and didn't even realize that he was insulting the piece itself, you know. Because that's the thing, on top of everything else, if Mozart had never heard of, had never heard any of Salieri's music, then Salieri could always say to himself, well, if he heard it, maybe he'd like it. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's the next step. Cause Lipsky could say like, well, he hasn't heard of my book. That's unfortunate, but you know what? I bet he'd like it if he read it. <laughs> Salieri cannot say that. Yeah. Um, and then doesn't he in playing it, add things onto it yes, and make it better. <laughs> it makes it more complex and makes it better. Oh yeah. my gosh. Can you imagine? <laughs> Cause that's the thing is I feel like everybody can, you said that David Lipsky is our end point, And I think that Salieri, we may not like it, but he is our end point. Mm-hmm. Most people are not Mozart. Most people aren't even Salieri, honestly. Yeah. Um, but uh, we're much more like Salieri than, than Mozart. And so what I was going to say actually is that when you're somebody who struggles with envy, the real, like, uh, so there's a, I have a, Quote uh, a Bible verse here, um, Proverbs fourteen thirty. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And there's something about like it rots the bones. It rots your very core, and your bones are you know the the thing that hold you up. Um, they give you form and st- and structure. And so if those start to rot away, then you start to just kind of crumble and go away. And with that, any kind of any sense of reason, because when you're envious of somebody you start, it's not merely that you're aggressive towards them, but you start to project a certain aggression, not towards you, but in general, it's, you start to put negative qualities on that person by, especially the idea of, uh, obliviousness or it's like, they don't even realize how good they have it. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't even realize it's, and, and Salieri absolutely feels that way about Mozart. It's like, Oh, he's this, what is it? Boastful, lustful, smutty infantile like he can't even appreciate what he has i work so hard and he just has this you know um like it's i mean you 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 find it with this when someone who is just like naturally in great shape they don't even work out and they're just in great shape and the first response by most people is like i hate you so much (laughs) because in our mind, that person is like, Hey, what do you think? You know, how about that? I'm just naturally in great shape. Isn't that, isn't that great? But even (laughs) 
even if they, they don't even say, isn't that great because that shows that they're aware of it. They're just walking through life and they have no idea how difficult it is for <laughs> other people. Um, that is what envy can do is it can really, you start to become bitter towards everybody and you start to, the world becomes as ugly as you are because that's the only way you can make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is a, a, a terrible situation to be in. And while I don't think that, that David Lipsky in, the end of the tour. I don't think he's Salieri to that, you know, to that degree, but, um, but at the same time, you know, the movie's based on his book. He'd written a number of others. What if he'd only ever written that one and nobody really heard of it? Mm -hmm. Then, you know, he might think back to, he might think to, uh, David Foster Wallace's suicide Mm -hmm. and think like he had all the talent in the world and he killed himself. He had no, like if I had that, Oh my gosh, I'd, I'd live, I'd try to live forever. Yeah. Um, and so, and by the way, I'm not talking about the actual David Lipsky. I'm only talking about this hype, hypothetical Lipsky right, based right. on the character from the film. Um, and so, and there's this other thing. So I was looking through, I was looking through quotes. Um, Salieri is saying about Mozart, he's saying he was my idol. Uh, I can't think of a time when I didn't know his name. I was still playing childish games and he was playing music for kings and emperors, even the Pope in Rome. I admit I was jealous when I heard the tales they told, told about him, not of the brilliant little prodigy himself, but of his father who has taught him everything. That is even deeper. It's not because when you're, it's the idea of I don't want to be the king. I want to be the king maker. I want to be the one that everyone could point to and say, look who caused this amazing mm-hmm. thing. And just like, that is a special level of envy. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I had remembered that line. Cause no, I think I it's, it's, it's just one short line uh, that, and they don't really come back to it. I mean, Mozart's father plays a big role in the, in the film, but uh, uh, partially as this oppressive figure in Mozart's, in Mozart's mind. And yeah. so, um, so Salieri's that, desire to be that is probably notable. Well, and then that like, uh, that's interesting dramatically now, something I hadn't realized because then the way Salieri comes to him later and yeah. is it that just Mozart thinks that he's his father at first or he thinks he brings a message from his father after his father's died I th- or something I think like it's that? that? Yes. So like that he, in a sense becomes the, uh, he becomes to represent Mozart's father for him. That's yeah. an interesting little dramatic turn. I wasn't, I didn't remember from the movie. Yeah. And, and then there's this, this interesting thing that I find that I, I like, well, I love it actually, because it, it just shows like some potential progress being made. And it's, you know, Mozart is, is towards the end of the film. He's working on, on a, on a piece and Salieri is there with him and is helping him. And, in that moment, yes, there could be this weird sense of self-loathing in Salieri because like, I can't believe I'm helping this person that I dislike make amazing music. But honestly, he does genuinely love music. And I think in that moment, he's just so happy to be a part of this that it doesn't even really matter who he's helping. Mm -hmm. He is helping to craft this beautiful music. And in that moment, he is not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about Mozart. He's not thinking about status. He's not even thinking about talent. He's thinking about this thing that is so beautiful and is bigger than both of them. Hmm. And in that moment, I'm excited because I feel like, oh, 
he's making progress. He's going to, he's going to realize that like, we all have our, like I was saying earlier, we all have our part to play. I'm not going to be Mozart, but I can recognize wonderful music. I can create my own and I can be a part of this. And that's exciting. People are going to hear this and they're going to love it. Um, but then Mozart gets sick and dies mm-hmm. and Salieri, uh, says to a priest, he says, you're merciful God. He destroyed his own beloved rather than let a mediocrity share in the smallest part of his glory. He killed Mozart and kept me alive to torture. 32 years of torture, 32 years of slowly watching myself become extinct. My music growing fainter, all the fainter till no one plays it at all. And his, and then he just trails off. Um, (laughs) but it's that idea of just, again, like he even looks at Mozart's death and sees it as a, as a reflection on him. Like he blames himself for his death. So there's guilt there, but it's also like everything comes back to him. You know, that is a man who's remarkably prideful and remarkably self-centered. And so, you know, so I think you're, I think in your, in your uh, assessment of the end of the tour, I think you're correct in saying a a Salieri, element in, uh, in David Lipsky, um, and just the, the instinct to be close to Wallace in some capacity. Cause I believe he creates this story out of, thin, not out of thin air, but he creates the idea of it, which is, Hey, maybe I'll go follow this guy around. I forget. Is he assigned it or does he come to his editor and say, I think I should do this. I think he comes to the editor and he yeah. wants it. And so, I'm reminded of, of Salieri's instinct to like be there with Mozart and do this great stuff. Um, but I don't know. I think with Lipsky, there's, there's the possibility that maybe it's like, I need to show myself that this guy is actually just a normal guy that he's, that he's human. Um, but then when he sees Wallace uh, trying to be a normal guy and it's like, it's, it, it, it's that same flare up of, are you kidding me? You're a genius and you can't even acknowledge you're a genius. You have the audacity to say that you're some normal guy. I wish I had what you had. Mm -hmm. And I believe they do get in an argument about that, that, that Lipsky ultimately says like, yeah, you may be a regular guy, but you have to acknowledge, but you, you realize that you're not right. You wrote a book that people love. People don't interview regular guys. This would not be happening if you were a regular guy. You have to know that. Yeah. And while the bitterness doesn't come out, maybe that's just because Lipsky is young. Uh, you know, if he keeps going with that, who's to say what would happen? But, um, but yeah, uh, I have a couple other uh, uh, passages here from the Bible. Um, James 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you did not because you do not ask God. All right, I want to stop there for a moment. You do not have because you do not ask God. Well, that sounds a little uh, Salieri-esque, and it sounds a little bit, uh, I'll just go ahead and say Joel Osteen-esque. Um, the idea that, well, if you just, if you want something, just ask God and he'll give it to you. Just ask. It's fine. Here's the deal though. Here's the rest of this passage. When you ask, you do not, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Well, that's Salieri. That's this guy. Like he wants talent, not for the purpose of bringing music to people, not for the the love of music itself. It's 
because I want to have talent. Yeah. And because of the, ple- the pleasure of being praised by others. Yeah. You know, and it's something, of course it feels good. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with wanting attention. There's nothing wrong with wanting praise. Everybody wants it. Um, but if that becomes the defining desire in your life, then, you know, it, you'll do anything to get it. And if you don't, and if that becomes the desire, the primary desire of your life, then you probably will never get the amount that you feel you deserve. Um, yeah, you can never be happy with that. Then where it can get really dark is you feel like you, you feel like you actually don't deserve that much, but you still want it. And then it turns into then there's envy, but then there's genuine self-loathing, mm-hmm. um, that I think Salieri, Salieri arrives at. Yeah, I think um, so. So, uh, so I want to end with, uh, James three verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such quote wisdom, unquote, uh, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So I want to focus on some of these things. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. Then, so let's let's list these off here. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I want to focus on submissive, impartial, and sincere. Those are not what Salieri is. No. Like, when you're submissive, I mean, the word submissive, unfortunately, culturally has come to mean uh, something just negative. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's, you know, from uh, the dog whisperer, they're like, ah, see, common submissive. That's how that needs to be. <laughs> uh, so it's something that dogs can be. And should be, uh, not, not we people here. Um, but when you're submissive, you're ultimately saying like you are to go back to, to repeat what I said, you're saying, this is my role and that's okay. And when you're impartial, that, that speaks to, I forget who it was. It might've been CS Lewis that talked about with art specifically that a man who truly loves art, um, and puts out uh, a, a bit of art and it gets praised or whatever it is, it gets widely accepted or gets famous or whatever. Um, if he truly loves the art, then he doesn't really care that it was he that created it. He can be, pr- he can be proud in the, in a positive sense. Like, I can't believe I created that. That's great. Um, but he would still point to the art and not necessarily him. Hmm. And, and so like, in talking about that scene with Salieri and Mozart, where Salieri is just helping him in that moment, he's impartial. He doesn't care if he gets the credit. He does. He knows that Mozart's going to get the credit and he doesn't care yeah. in that moment. He genuinely is impartial because he's putting the music first. Uh, and then sincere, you know, as elsewhere in the film, uh, Salieri is attempting to be Mozart's friend, but he is being very insincere. Yeah. Um, because he just wants to get close for any number of reasons, not unlike David Lipsky. He wants to get close because he's a fan. 
mm-hmm. and he wants to get close maybe so he can betray him somehow. But just, I don't know, there's this weird, and I, and I can speak to this as well, you know, especially in middle school and high school, there are like people that I was very envious of for various reasons. And so I felt like I just wanted to befriend them, not to hurt them, not to, not to, uh, betray them or anything like that. Um, I just felt like you just get so fixated on this thing that you're not, that you just, uh, there's a Tom Waits lyric where he says, the only thing that you can see is all that you lack. And I feel like that's envy is so tunnel visioned. Mm-hmm. Like it blocks out everything else, including what you already have right now. Right. David Lipsky just published a book. Yeah. As you were saying, that's no small thing. That's very exciting. And, right. and it was getting, and is getting good reviews for it. He's not David Foster Wallace and he's never going to be. Mm-hmm. And, Salieri, uh, by all accounts, he was not actually like this in real life, that he had a very healthy relationship with Mozart. Mozart respected him as well. And that much of what we know to be the modern opera, not even modern, but just like the staples of opera, they all come from Salieri. Um, so he was not the mediocrity that he, uh, that he is depicted as here or that he sees himself as, um, but anyway, but he, but even if he is, even if this is the, the real Sal- Salieri, he's able to do tremendous things and he's been given tremendous opportunity. If nothing else, he's been given the opportunity to make music. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah. But he doesn't see it. All he sees is what he lacks. And, you know, when we are envious of anything, when we're envious of, uh, you know, somebody else's money, somebody else's talent, somebody else's, you know, good looks, whatever it is, um, we are failing to see what we might have and where we've been blessed. And when we start to, then when we start to see, when we start to, uh, neglect how we've been blessed, that's when you start to get into Salieri territory and you start to resent God for what he hasn't done for you instead of what he has. And, you know, to bring things back around to, uh, you know, Jesus, um, (laughs) Christian podcast. Why not? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, God has done a great deal for you. Even if you have just a crappy job and maybe you're, maybe you don't have a family or anything like that. You know, maybe the, all the different definitions of success based, you know, in the world, maybe they aren't happening for you. And yet he still did a great deal for you. And you can focus on what you don't have, or you can focus on what you do have. And in this case, what you have is in fact everything. So something worth noting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So good stuff. Good conversation. I feel like I had most of it there at the end. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> That's all right. Um, but, uh, and I could see you just champing at the bit, just ready to talk. I had you certainly so weren't say, yawning. And you I weren't forgot rub- all of it. <laughs> you weren't rubbing your eyes. <laughs> you clearly did not want to go to sleep. Um, no, who wants sleep? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, uh, listeners, I hope that, uh, it's this is not a spoiler type of movie so hopefully in talking about it uh honestly i feel like the more you talk about it the more intriguing it becomes because these conversations are very labyrinthine in in certain ways and so they remind me in a lot of ways of uh we're talking about the the conversations from uh, the end of the tour not the ones that you and i have um but they uh those are actually pretty simple i say how are you doing and you say hi yeah Um, (laughs) something like that (laughs) um 
but, uh, but yeah, uh, they remind me of the kind of fr- conversations that I would have with my friends about art and just like really digging in deep and just, and it can be really exciting. Yeah. Um, and so if you enjoy that kind of stuff, uh, check out the end of the tour. It is very much worth watching. I didn't mean to say that. Um, <laughs> but now that I have, uh, <laughs> maybe I did mean to say it and I didn't oh. know. Um, so uh, I think I told this story. Uh, I believe I told this story last week, but I'll tell it again because I don't think you heard it. Hmm. Um, at the International Christian Film Festival, I was sitting at my table and this woman was walking by and she happened to glance and did a double take and then like made a beeline for my table. And she goes, I need to buy your book. And I said, hey, all right, great. Why? Uh, and then she said, because a minute, like not even one minute ago, I was praying to God and I said, God, show me what's worth watching. And I said, well, there you go, <laughs> obviously. And so, uh, you know. Wow. So I've you're got, doing the Lord's work. I've got to thank for that 10 bucks. <laughs> um, that's the way I look at it. So uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, check out uh, the end of the tour. And obviously, if you haven't seen it, uh, check out Amadeus. You know, we haven't done an episode about it, but we did spend a good chunk of time talking about it here. We, yeah. So what? Yeah, I, I was saying, um, I, I was thinking before we did, when we talked about it for uh, for uh, Best of Pictures, I feel like that was maybe a lengthier episode. I believe it was as well. Maybe that's um, why I'm th- feeling like I've talked about it a lot. Yeah, and... Uh, and that's the thing is, even in talking about it here, you know, we both in talking about uh, Salieri as a type of father figure and his desire to be a father figure. Uh, that's something that did not occur to me yeah. and to, or I, I didn't remember it until I was doing research for this episode. Um, so it's a film that definitely yields uh, uh, yields treasures uh through multiple viewings. Yeah, and, I uh, think so. Definitely a film worth revisiting. So anyway, um, all right. You're welcome to leave a comment uh, in the this post uh, at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler, at morethanonelesson.com or Josh, Josh at morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. Don't expect to get a lot of activity there. Josh, you got to tweet more. <laughs> yeah, I know. At the very least, tweet when like a notable actor dies. Like Powers Booth just died, and that really bummed me out. Did he actually die? Because there was a whole thing out about how like they thought it was a. There was another article saying that that was like a hoax that he wasn't actually dead. And Paul F. Tompkins tweeted two articles back and forth, one saying that he had, and one saying that it was a hoax. But the that one was poorly worded or something, and he was like, "I don't know what happened." So well, gosh, now I don't know. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. It's like. When it, if it stays on Twitter, that's usually that usually means it's a hoax. And if there are hashtags involved, that usually means it's a hoax. <laughs> um, but it was reported on IMDb, and that was it? usually okay. uh, I don't know. That usually means something. Yeah, Maybe New not. York Times seven hours ago. So I think I think that's real. Yeah, and I mean, unless there's any mention of politics in there, I trust the the New York Times. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they still found a way. <laughs> um, so. Uh, Sorry, everybody. I didn't mean to do that, but uh, <laughs> I was talking about the New York Times recently and uh, was making some jokes about it. So anyway, um, but yeah, uh, you know, when uh, Powers Booth passes away or, or uh, Michael Parks passed away uh, last week, um, who was in the Kill Bill films and was in Red State, the Kevin Smith film. He was in Tusk, the Tev- Kevin Smith film. And you know what? He's great. 
I didn't he takes, see those films. He takes the vapid, terrible dialogue <laughs> by Kevin Smith and makes it not merely serviceable, but good. It's a it's a real feat. Um, good for him. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that's. I'm just giving okay. you some ideas of what to tweet about. You so can next, just tweet about stuff that you Next you've time an actor dies, I'll just say, sorry to hear so-and-so died. R.I.P. I have to put R.I.P.? You do. Okay. Hashtag R.I.P. You know what you should do? You should just tweet in French from now on. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Um, just anyway. heard someone died. Sacre bleu. <laughs> Invader. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, uh, okay. Uh, and then also you can like us on Facebook. So... Uh, All right. Thank you, everybody, for uh, listening. Josh, thank you for being here. You're welcome. We'll get you next time. Bye.